This podcast is brought to you by the Village of Bedford Park, your home for business. Over 450 businesses strong and growing with a safe, reliable Lake Michigan water supply. Visit VOBPBiz.com and bring your business home to the Village of Bedford Park. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. It's 12.03 on St. Patrick's Day. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rob Hart. I'm not saying that uh, we're in the uh, St. Patrick's Day mood here at the well-appointed Odyssey Studios in Chicago, but we do have a uh, bagpiper in the building. So if you hear the sound of uh, pipes in the background, it's not uh, it's not an illusion. An important deadline is approaching that would allow some retirees to avoid a tax penalty. We'll cover that in our next segment. But right now, we evaluate last night's debate between Chicago mayoral candidates Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson. We're joined by Andy Shaw, former ABC7 political reporter, former head of the Better Government Association, WBBM political analyst. Andy, thank you for joining us once again this afternoon. As we approach April 4th, what will move the needle in this race? Is it the policy proposals that uh, Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis now know by heart? Or is it the endorsements that are coming with uh, ever-increasing speed? Well, Rob, we're almost done with the endorsement game this morning. A very important endorsement, Congressman Chewy Garcia, who was an early favorite in the mayor's race but got in late and stumbled and finished fourth, he has endorsed Brandon Johnson, which unifies the progressive block of voters in Chicago. They were rivals, of course, in the primary. That's a big endorsement if Garcia can bring out the Latino vote for Brandon Johnson, and if it also really does unify the progressive wing. The only missing endorsement that may or may not be forthcoming is Mayor Lightfoot, who lost, of course, in the mayoral primary. Her endorsement would be critical because she won the majority of the African-American vote. And at the end of the day, that is likely to determine the outcome of this election. Paul Vellis did relatively well in parts of the black community and in parts of the Latino community. So what happens in those key voting blocks in a city that's roughly one-third white, one-third black, one-third Latino could determine who our next mayor is. We do have uh, at least one uh, uh, decent poll uh, looking at the runoff race, one that has uh, Paul Vallis ahead by Brandon Johnson by about six percentage points, but a lot of undecided voters out there. And this still seems to be the public safety campaign. And I guess the question, Andy, for voters to determine themselves is uh, which candidate is going to show up when they arrive at City Hall, the people tacking to the center right now or the people who were performing for various online constituencies before they announced for mayor. And and depending on how this comes out, Rob, there's going to be a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking. Paul Vallis won the primary convincingly, had a million dollars in the bank, and many experts thought he would come out swinging against Brandon Johnson, who once talked about defunding the police and is proposing $800 million in higher taxes. But Vallis sat back and 
was above the fray for the next couple of weeks, giving Johnson a chance to refill his campaign coffers and begin an ad campaign. Last night, in a key debate on Channel 7, Vallis came out swinging more aggressively than he has in the past. He repeatedly hit Johnson on his police stance and his tax stances. Johnson's been aggressive all along, accusing Vallis of being a, a tool of right-wing Republicans. And so I think we're really heading for a very, very heated and tight finish as the endorsements come in. And as I said, uh, it'll be interesting to see if Mayor Lightfoot endorses either candidate or sits it out because the primary was so unpleasant and so bruising. Andy Shaw, former ABC7 political reporter, former head of the BGA and WBBM political analyst. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Coming up, important information to help retirees avoid a potential tax penalty. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Retirees who turned 72 last year have until April 1st to make their first mandatory retirement plan withdrawal or face a 25% tax penalty. Here to give us a better understanding of this is Ed Jertson, certified financial planner and founder of the Engage Wealth Group based in Chicago, past national president of the Financial Planning Association. Find him online at theengagewealthgroup.com. Ed, thank you for joining us today. Walk us through this process. You turned 72 last year. April 1st is bearing down. What, What do you have to do right now to avoid this tax hit? Yeah. Hey, Rob, great to be with you because RMDs or required minimum distributions are one of the more confusing things for retirees. So if you turned age 72 this year, you have up until April 1st to take your 2022 RMD. So you did, if you did not take your RMD last year at age 72, you have to take it this year again. And to add potential insult to injury, you still have to take your 2023 RMD. So in essence, if you didn't take your RMD last year at age 72, you'll be taking two this year. Now, now walk us through the RMD process here, because I think the assumption for a lot of people, let's say you're not, not 72, is that uh, Social Security starts at a certain age of eligibility. And I know we have talked about in the past that it may make a great deal of sense financially to hold off on that as long as you can. But it sounds like there's a deadline here. Yeah, so Congress likes to confuse us, and they always are changing the rules. So back in the day, RMDs used to be 70 and a half, and then they were 72. And go figure, last year they they um, uh, put through the SECURE Act 2.0, and that changed the rules again. So those individuals, those listeners who are expecting to have to take their RMD because they turned age 72 this year, <clears throat> being in 2023, they don't have to take it until next year. So again, this is where the confusion comes in because there's so many different ages and numbers. Trying to discern and disseminate what's important to you is is really difficult. So again, just for your listeners, if you turned age 72 this year, you do not have to take your RMD until next year. Is there has is there research or have there been surveys taken that determine how many people to whom this actually applies? Yeah, there, there's uh, the IRS has figures and numbers, but I just want to make I, I want to make one more point, Rob, because it's really important because this is a confusing thing. If you are currently working for a company 
this is your current employer and you have a 401k or a 403b and you turn age 72 or age 73 and you're still working for that current employer, those RMD rules don't apply to you. But if you have a previous employer's 401k plan, so you're no longer working there, those RMD rules do apply. So there's there's just so many different nuances of these RMD rules and, and people have to be very aware of those. Uh, one more thing, if I could, Rob, if you're, a, if you're a sole employer, right, and you have a SEP IRA, even though that is a retirement plan, because it's an IRA, you're subject to those RMD rules as well. So in other words, if, if you're 72, you have just turned 72, and I talked about, you know, what should you do to avoid the tax hit uh, come April 1st, uh, should you call the Social Security Administration? Do you call a financial planner? Uh, what's the best way to get your ducks in a row? Yeah, so two things I would guide your listeners on. Seek out a qualified, certified financial planner to guide you and also lean on your tax professional again. If you turned 72 last year and did not take your RMD, that's where your April 1st deadline comes in. And you definitely want to take it again before April 1st for last year's RMD. And then don't forget, you have to take it again this year. So going on the IRS website, they're relatively straightforward and confusing, but really engaging with a certified financial planner or a qualified tax professional can go a long way to help you disseminate through the confusion. Ed Jertsen, Certified Financial Planner and founder of the Engage Wealth Group in Chicago. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up next, those celebrating St. Patrick's Day may not be drinking as much Irish whiskey as you might think. Cashing in with conversation, the WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. While it may seem appropriate to enjoy a shot of Jameson Irish whiskey on this St. Patrick's Day, it seems U.S. whiskey makers have the luck of the Irish. Joining us now to look at this phenomenon is Carly Katz, owner of Bottles and cans with two locations in Chicago, North Center and Edgebrook. Carly, thank you for joining us today on Twitter no this problem. morning. Hi, I, well, and, and a happy St. Patrick's Day to you. And I'm sure it is happy a very St. Patrick's happy St. Patrick's Day uh, when you are in the liquor store business. Uh, posted a picture on Twitter this morning of uh, two cans of Guinness that were about to go uh, into the crock pot with the uh, corned beef and some red potatoes to be waiting for me when I get home tonight. And uh, oh, along with amazing. it will be a uh, splash of uh, Tullamore Dew Irish whiskey on this uh, St. Patrick's Day. But uh, as people like to say, everyone's Irish on St. Patrick's Day, and I guess uh, every whiskey is an Irish whiskey on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, that's usually what it feels like. I mean, definitely the Irish whiskeys has staked the claim to St. Patrick's Day, seeing as that the, uh, the old uh, historical components of it are that St. Patrick himself actually created the distilling process to make Irish whiskey. So they kind of, they get to hang their hat on it a little, a little longer than the, the rest of the makers, but that's usually where they, where they get that from. And, and every country that has a whiskey distilling process unique to it, whether we're talking about Tennessee whiskey, bourbon, scotch, uh, Japanese whiskey, uh, you can take that process with you and replicate it at, at any point in the world. And the, just there are so many new varieties of whiskeys available that, that I'm sure that you're selling. Are there American distillers that are making their own interpretation of Irish whiskey? They, so, yes. And, and that's kind of the fun of seeing it, because as that industry grows, a lot of these distilleries want to take their, their turn at making these kind of other things. The issue that a lot of them have, though, is with like Irish whiskey. The rule of thumb is, is that they have to be made 
in Ireland on the aisle, and that is kind of the the rule of it. Uh, it also has to be made with 50% malted barley, and that's what they're taking away. They're taking away essentially like the recipe components, not necessarily the physical landmarks of where things are made, but it's it's the same with bourbon. A lot of people assume that it has to be made in Kentucky to be called bourbon, uh, not to hurt all the people out there who have lived by that for so long, but it's actually that it has to stand with more corn malt or sorry, um, corn grain than um, anything else to be called a bourbon. So it, it's a little it's a little tricky how they do it. They're they're welcome to call things as they will, but a lot of times there's that one little thing that they can't line up, which is usually the the place in the world that it's made. Statistically speaking, I mean, is this Jameson's day or is it outsold by other whiskeys? I, w- I would say that we'll, we'll likely see a turn at some point, but it's still at this point very much Jameson's day. And then they, they have marketed themselves very, very well. <laughs> and, and then just for the for, for a, a, a liquor store, um, what kind of a day is St. Patrick's Day? Is this like Black Friday for retail? I mean, does your business year kind of revolve around this particular week? So it, it weirdly doesn't. Um, St. Patrick's Day in Chicago is a bar holiday, uh, 100%. Where we see kind of the increase on our days is the, the pregame, um, if you will. It's a lot of like Guinness in the morning, Irish coffees in the morning. So people come in kind of the day before, get that set up, then they get ready to go and see, you know, their favorite Irish band. They go out there to make sure they get their corned beef and hash. And that's where we see the uptick. But typically, we, we, it's not quite the same as, as going into the bar and getting the full experience. Carly Katz, owner of Bottles and Cans, two locations in Chicago, Edgebrook and North Center. Still ahead, Entrepreneur Friday, a look at upcoming Chicago events that will focus on the food industry and innovation. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. This is Chicago's News Traffic and Weather Station, News Radio 105.9. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon. I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. President Biden asks Congress to allow regulators to impose tougher penalties on the executives of banks that fail. An arrest warrant for Russia's president has been issued by the International Criminal Court. It's Entrepreneur Friday. We'll hear about an upcoming Chicago event in which food industry innovators will discuss emerging trends for the year. Plus, help for potential homeowners to better prepare for maintenance and financing costs. WBBM Business, the markets are lower. The Dow is down 325 points. The NASDAQ is down 69. The S&P 500 is down 36. We have 31 degrees right now in Chicago under cloudy skies.
It's 12.31, topping our news at the half hour. President Biden called on Congress today to allow regulators to impose tougher penalties on the executives of failed banks, including clawing back compensation and making it easier to bar them from working in the industry. The president wants the FDIC to be able to force the return of compensation paid to executives at a broader rank of a range of banks should they fail and to lower the threshold for the regulator to impose fines and bar executives from working at another bank. This follows the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank that sent shockwaves through the global banking industry. From The Hague comes word that the International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin. The details from CBS News correspondent Cammie McCormick. The court says this warrant is because of Putin's alleged involvement in abductions of children from Ukraine. It calls it an unlawful deportation and he bears the responsibility for the war crime. A warrant was also issued for the arrest of the Commissioner for Children's Rights in the office of the President of the Russian Federation on similar allegations. It's 12.32 as the noon business hour continues. Stocks are trading sharply lower. Joining us now with the latest in what's moving Wall Street is Gary Kultbaum, president of Kultbaum Capital Management based in Orlando. Find him online, GaryK.com. Gary, thank you for joining us once again today. When we spoke at 10.20 this morning, we talked about how there is a little bit of a crisis of confidence going on in the banking sector and that uh, the health of the banking sector is determined by a couple of things, at least as far as the markets are concerned, uh, their actual balance sheets, and then the confidence of the general public that the banks can actually come up with your money when you want it. So taking a look at the uh, the sell-off today involving First Republic, the jitters once again bank, back in the banking sector, how much of this is uh, actual assets and how much of this is just a, a loss of confidence in the industry? Well, in the markets and in the world, confidence, the intangible matters a lot. And if you think about this, 11 of the largest banks gave $30 billion to shore First Republic yesterday, and the stock is down huge today. I think in a nutshell, that tells you everything you need to know about what kind of confidence there is, uh, whether or not First Republic stays a going concern or not. There is a shoot first, ask questions later, because when you're dealing with people in their money and the worry about losing it overnight, and in a year where you had things like stable coins go from uh, 100 down to zero overnight, uh, people tend to worry. And when you see a Silicon Valley bank, people tend to worry. And when you have a Janet Yellen, while all this is going on, looks into the camera and says, oh, don't worry, everything's just fine. Uh, well, people uh, will be worried with that. Uh, they should be a little bit more, what word am I looking for, a little bit more understanding of uh, people and their emotions and their hard-earned savings than just saying everything's A-OK when it isn't. And that, doesn't this also make the uh, the Fed's job that much more complicated? They already had to thread the needle of hiking interest rates without crashing the economy, and now they have to. Hi- it seems like they have to thread two of them. Well, my my thought process on them is they're overrated. I think they've caused most of the problems, and I think they don't really matter as much right now. I think the market's doing the talking. The 10-year yield has dropped from 4.3 down to 3.4. In the last week, you see the short-term rates go from 5 down to 4. That is the flight to quality, flight to safety. Uh, and, and Jay Powell now is just way behind. He's up at 4.5%. So really, anything he decides to do this week, uh, notwithstanding printing a ton of money again, which would 
you know, cause more inflation. I, I, I don't think it's a big deal if he goes a quarter point or does nothing. I think what matters most is what you're seeing in the real markets. And for me, that's what's always mattered. And the reason why we got in trouble Jay Powell taking over the markets and playing God with them. And then speaking of markets, and this was a conversation I had with several people this week, and that is uh, coming in and insuring depositors, regardless of the size of their deposit, uh, they say that will encourage risky behavior in the future because if the markets do punish you, Uncle Sam's going to come to the rescue. Uh, it's called moral hazard. If you believe you have no risk, you will tend to uh, take risk. Uh, if you think you're going to be taken care of no matter what, you tend to uh, be a little bit more aggressive. Uh, I don't think, you know, it's 15 years ago since 08. Uh, it's a long time past, and I think a lot of people forgot uh, what happened. And I think a lot of people have gotten away with things they shouldn't have. Do you remember back then they said, oh, derivatives, don't worry, we won't do it again. The CDOs, we won't do it again. Well, they've done it again, and there's a ton of leverage in the system again. We've had massive debt and deficits right now. They promised that wouldn't happen, and they, they supersized that. So I just think no lessons have been learned. And unfortunately, guess who the victims are? The American public. Gary Kulpbaum, President of Kulpbaum Capital Management in Orlando. Find him online, GaryK.com. Coming up next in Entrepreneur Friday, we'll look at an upcoming event that brings food industry innovators together to discuss emerging trends for the year ahead. Money conversation that pays a big dividend. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Entrepreneur Friday on the Noon Business Hour, and we're featuring a look at the taste of innovation that's happening in Chicago on Tuesday. Joining us with a preview is Luke. Luke Tannen, Executive Director of ChicagoInnovation.com. Luke, thank you for joining us today. Now, Taste of Chicago may have been moved to September, but Taste of Innovation is happening on Tuesday. And this has got to be a lot of fun for uh, both you and for the participants because uh, everybody loves food. Everybody loves new ways of preparing food. And there are some some really interesting and clever and creative and uh, futuristic concepts on display. Yes. Well, thank you, Rob, also for having me. And yeah, who doesn't love food? Who doesn't love innovation? We've mashed it together for our annual Taste of Innovation event, which is hosted by our group, Chicago Innovation, and done this year in partnership with the Chicagoland Food and Beverage Network. And it really is a celebration of Chicago as a growing hub of food and beverage innovation. It all takes place Tuesday, March 21st at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater, which is a beautiful place on Navy Pier. We've got 450 people registered to attend so far, so it will be a packed house. We're very excited for it. And and this is going to bring together all sorts of different entities and restaurant groups and corporations from some of the biggest uh, food and beverage operators in the country to uh, restaurants in Chicago and everything in between. Uh, One thing that really jumped out at me is that you'll have drinks served by both humans and robots. And uh, so so there there are some uh, robots robotic food uh, service uh, applications on display. Tell us about that. Yeah, so there's several things. One is a, uh, think of it as a Keurig for uh, alcoholic spirits. It's called Bartesian. Uh, so that'll be one way we're serving drinks. We've, uh, we're in touch with some engineers who are building a robotic arm that's going to be pouring whiskey. So, you know, it's meant to be very experiential and fun. And, and really, you know, in general, there's two main components to this event. First, there's, there's a panel discussion of innovative leaders in Chicago's food industry. And to your point, Rob, it's across the whole ecosystem. They'll be discussing hot trends and giving their take on the future of food. So some of the speakers are restaurateurs, 
by Kevin Bame from Boca Restaurant Group. And, and then another one is Chef Eric Williams of Virtue, who actually made history last year as the first black chef to win a James Beard Award for Best Chef in the Great Lakes. But then also there's some corporate innovators from Kraft Heinz and Accenture who are on the panel. And then a pair of food industry entrepreneurs that hear her market. Um, and then uh, Pete Cadence, who's the moderator, who's also taking um, honey butter fried chicken out to the suburbs. Which is, and talk about a remarkable success story, because it was 10 years ago when uh, Honey Butter Fried Chicken was merely a food truck, and he opened that space on Elston Avenue, and there was a great deal of anticipation. I think I was there on day one or day two just to try it out. So it's really cool that uh, one decade in, he's uh, expanding. Yes, and you know what? If you haven't been to the one in the city, you got to go. It's delicious. And now, People in the suburbs can have access to it as well. So, you know, the, the, the event will be focusing on, you know, really how to innovate across the whole food industry landscape. And, and besides the speaking panel, um, you know, the other thing that I think is going to be really fun is the big, large networking reception. And for that, we've got famous food from Shakespeare's plays that will be reimagined by Boca Restaurant Group. So keep in mind, the venue is Chicago Shakespeare Theater. So we want to have a, a little fun with the food theme. Um, but we'll also have tasting and sampling stations from Chicago-based whiskey distillery Koval. There'll be craft beer brewery Primary Colors sampling, winemaker Esquire by Cooper's Hawk. There'll be snacks from Chicago food tech company Farmer's Fridge. And then, you know, we got to send some food with people as they leave. So there's a parting gift of gift bags uh, put together by He Her Market. It's going to include chef-created sauces, spices, desserts, and more. So it'll be a a bonanza of food and drinks at the Taste of Innovation. I was going to say, Luke, uh, also at the Chicago Shakespeare Theater, you have uh, one too many robot-prepared uh, cocktails. Uh, you might be in the mood for a, a soliloquy of your own. That could be. You know, you never know what you're going to get at Chicago Innovation events, but they're always great for networking, great for learning about um, innovation across different industries. Um, and, and really, you know, again, it's we're all about educating, connecting, and celebrating innovators in Chicago and we want to do as much as we can to celebrate Chicago as a hub of innovation. It's got a rich history in food manufacturing dating all the way back to the World's Fair of 1893, where the city launched iconic food companies like Vienna Beef and Heinz Condiments and, and other brands that still exist 120 years later. But, but today, the city still has a dominance in this space, and you're seeing more startups, more money flowing in. Um, and we're just excited to really put Chicago even more so on the map. In the food and beverage space. Luke Tannen, Executive Director, ChicagoInnovation.com. Thank you for joining us today. An economy of words. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. A new survey shows nine out of ten people who bought homes in the past three years say they were unprepared for the extra costs of financing and maintenance. Here to give us a better perspective on this is Steve Kirch, real estate editor of MarketWatch.com, based in Chicago. Steve, thank you for joining us today. And this is not necessarily like surprise experience expenses we're talking about here. This is just average run-of-the-mill expenses when it comes to uh, uh, finishing the mortgage, closing on your house, dealing with maintenance. I think it surprises everybody, especially if you're a first-time homeowner. Yeah, that's for sure, Rob. Uh, I mean, my first impression when when looking at this idea is, you know, join the club. All of us who have become homeowners at some time uh, get hit with the kinds of costs that, you know, even in our wildest dreams, we couldn't have expected. Uh, this survey, which was taken over the last three years, though, uh, is probably more negative than, than a lot because we're talking about a lot of people who bought during the pandemic, 
uh, and we're maybe hoping for more. You know, it gets kind of a, a different sort of time. But a lot of the items that they list as as being problematic in terms of cost are ones that are, are well known ahead of time. And how much of this is a function of perhaps uh, maybe you have a new generation coming into the uh, homeowner pool and they do their they, they base their calculations off of the uh, estimates on some real estate website and then the, then reality gives them a cold hard slap. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and there's only so much you can plan, right? A lot of the things that that are reported here, property taxes, renovations, utilities, roof work. I mean, sometimes you can see those coming and sometimes you can't. And let's not forget, too, that inflation has picked up mightily in the last year and a half. And that's going, you know, property taxes, I don't think ever go down. But a lot of these other things for uh, homeowners insurance and utility bills, uh, those those costs are rising faster than they have in quite some time, and that's putting an extra burden on homeowners, a lot of whom were paying premium prices for homes in these years. And then, even, so even if you got the uh, that that two percent mortgage or that uh, low threes mortgage uh, sometime in 2020, you're still dealing with sticker shock in case you have to repair a stove or buy a new fridge. Yeah, those are those are always maintenance. Part, you know, and again, it depends on the age of the house that you bought. Uh, a lot of the you know prime home building years around the suburbs, in particular, you know, those houses are fifty, sixty years old now. A lot of obsolescence. You just have to replace these systems because they're aging. And and then very quickly, uh, is there kind of a rule of thumb of just uh, money you should set aside, or a calc- or or an amount you should tack on to what you're paying in terms of mortgage or closing costs to uh, just to so that to mitigate that sticker shock? Well, at least for some of it, uh, you know, the maintenance routine maintenance, which will help you perhaps you know put off some of the bigger expenditures. Uh, most folks say take about one percent of your home price. Uh, uh, per month, I think that is. So for a $500,000 house, you better have about 500 bucks set aside each month, or that's 0.1%, uh, 500 bucks a month in just general maintenance, and that might help prevent some of the bigger work down the line. Steve Kirch, real estate editor with Market Watch in Chicago. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports. Back clock at four. Doncic. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Odyssey celebrates the class of 2024, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. 